All right. I'm grateful to have the opportunity to come back up here again. I know <clears throat> allergies and starting to hit me now. It's that time of year. But I know in preparation for this, it's very interesting. When you come out of a Roman background, um, you, you learn the law the wrong way. But you learn the law. And I must say, I was convinced coming into this that the Roman Catholic order was kind of more accurate. And then as I studied through it and got challenged by some of the godly men over the ages, um, I started seeing that I believe the Protestant view is, is the right view now. And in working through that, it was very challenging with some of the, has nothing to do with some of the straw men that are thrown out there. Um, the Roman Catholic order was before the idolatrous Mary worship and Pope, you know, Augustine of Hippo. <clears throat> those those arguments that we make as Protestants aren't really very helpful. But I believe that when you go through the text, I believe that it can be helpful just to let the text speak for itself. So catechism... What are we on? Question 54 tonight. So as we work our way through this catechism, it's just amazing. We're already this far into it. You know, I, I remember when we were just talking about having night service. We were just going to have, we were having theology night at the time. We were watching videos and stuff like that. And it's been a blessing to me. I mean, I can tell you that uh, some of the things that the Lord has just taught me over the last few years, like even in going through the Exodus, I was shocked. It was like, reading through my one-year Bible again, and it reminded me of a few years ago that I had just learned when Jesus was quoting the Decalogue, I'm like, oh, that's what he was quoting right there. So when you come from a church that's not strong in the commandments of God and your family worship, you're just trying to figure things out as you go along, it's such a big difference when you're at a church that handles the word accurately, that comes and proclaims the word with power, with authority. And you have brothers who believe that, and you see them live their lives out like that. And that that helps our faith flourish. And that's important because our faith is tested more than ever. I mean, like Nick was talking about the Ukraine and all this stuff going on. I mean, I have family in the military that was telling me, hey, there's going to be some pretty big conflicts coming up. And I'm like, oh, I hope not. But when you study history and you see economic downturn and stuff like that, you see usually wars come after that. So, and that's what we're seeing right now. So the second commandment here in the Decalogue, and the Decalogue is the Ten Commandments. Um, this brings, it to the, brings us to the sin of idolatry. So there was a... There was a glean of the book of uh, I love A.W. Pink. I've already said that, but in his gleanings in Exodus, he wrote, two is the number of witnesses. And in this second commandment, man is forbidden to attempt any visible representation of deity, whether furnished by the skill of the artist or the sculptor. The first commandment points out the one only object of worship. The second tells us how he is to be worshipped, in spirit and in truth, by faith and not by images which appeal to the senses. 
The design of this commandment is to draw us away from carnal conceptions of God and to prevent his worship being profaned by superstitious rites. So I really thought that was helpful to get started because idolatry, as we'll see here tonight, I pray that it comes in so many different forms. You know, it's not like we'll see later, I believe it's not just the carved image. We'll get into that here in a minute, but I don't have the screen behind, but if some of you have, does any of you have the catechism or I was going to say if we could read together, but I'll just read it. So question 54, which is the second commandment? Answer, the second commandment is, thou, are you reading it with it? Oh, yeah, I was reading with you. You read it? Go ahead and read it. No, no, I was reading it with you, man. <laughs> All right. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or the likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Why don't we pray? Because this is, for me, a very lofty topic, um, especially when you're preaching on a sin you know you're guilty of. I think I don't know anyone in this world who's ever lived other than Jesus can cannot say that we're not idolaters, right? Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for this opportunity, Lord, to grow in your word, to share uh, your word, to bring your word, Lord. I pray that we would leave here tonight just refining our faith, Lord, that you would do that work in us, Lord, and that we would understand that as worshipers of you, that we are to do so in spirit and in truth, Lord, help us to do that in a way that would be honoring to you. Help us to be holy as you are holy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So idolatry is unlike any other sin in the Bible. The second commandment is a prohibition of idolatry. And as I was saying a moment ago, I don't know how we can sit up here and look ourselves in the face and act like we're not guilty of idolatry because it's just a fact. Every person breathing in this room who has a heartbeat has committed idolatry and continues to commit idolatry. I believe that repentance, obviously, when we come to Christ, we are true worshipers of God at that point, but... I do believe that in various ways we violate this command. I think that if we're honest with ourselves, we, we must admit that. John Calvin said our hearts are like idol factories, right? And he was right, and he is right. I mean, that, that's a comment that went beyond his death and sticks with us today. It is a sin that's filled with deception. Once it's committed, it leads to all other kinds of different sins. Colossians 3, 5 says, therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Okay, I'll say that again. Covetousness is idolatry. Can anyone here say they're not a covetous man or woman? Well, why would the Lord say you should not covet your neighbor's goods, right? Because it's natural for us 
in our natural man, in our fallenness, to covet. I remember when my wife and I were cleaning out uh, our house a few, this was what, two summers ago, and I was just shocked at how much stuff we had. And we still need to clean out our house. And I'm just like, is something wrong with us? Are we mentally ill, right? But we're, we're sinful. We're sinful people. You know, we we collect all kinds of things in my house. You know, I'm coming from the kind of culture we grew up in. You wear Jordans. You wear this. You wear that. Well, it's different to wear them and then collect them. And then you go from collecting shoes to collecting jewelry to collecting cars to collecting all kinds of stuff. And there's nothing wrong with having things. It's when the things have you and you're willing to you know, worship and go other routes to get them. So, like I said, idolatry doesn't just come in this carved way. I pray that we see that tonight. So most of the sin that flows from an evil desire to make other gods in our lives to compete with Christ. Paul declared that, uh, obviously under the inspiration of the Spirit, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness is idolatry. I'm going to repeat myself a lot tonight because we're dealing with a topic that's addressed all throughout scripture and we do need to get this through our thick skulls because this is a sin that easily besets us. The word pathos, uh, passion, literally means depraved passion or emotional desire or lust. When Ivan and I went to go speak at the uh, Freedom High School, I was so shocked at how the keynote speaker was heavily just promoting idolatry. Everything was emotional. This, it's your emotional. Um, what is she? She kept saying, "Your emotional achievements, your emotional success, your emotional uh, worldview." And I just was like, "Wow, emotion, emotion, emotion." Well, when I found out she was a practicing lesbian and you know was just flaunting that lifestyle. All my nervousness turned into anger. And I said, well, I'm going to get up here. And if she's that passionate about what she believes, I've got a few things to say myself. And the Lord really gave me a lot of uh, zeal to get up there and just bring the word. And so I was very grateful the way that turned out. But idolatry, this this desire, this this word here, pathos, the depraved passion aspect of it. Like we always think of sin as pleasure. We hear the Bible say that sin and its passing pleasures are only for a season, right? Well, when I studied this word, this blew me away because the literal definition of it means to cause suffering. So here we are trying to enjoy these, these pleasures from something that's destroying us. See, and there were so many other verses I wanted to put in here like, when the Lord had told his people, you're destroying yourself, you know? And I don't think we take those those things to heart like we should. So this sin of idolatry is synonymous with these other sins. As Paul told the church at Ephesus, verbatim, pretty much the same thing. In Ephesians 5, 5, for this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, or covetous man who is an idolater, there it is again, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. A covetous man is an idolater. For you to covet something and want it, 
knowing you really can't get it, you shouldn't have it, but you go and get it anyway, it's idolatry. It's idolatry. You know, I got into an argument with uh, one of the local attorneys we use who refused to do an eviction the other day, and he started talking about free health care for everybody and talking about our health care and housing was a right. I said, sir, I'm not, I'm not calling you for a political debate. I'm calling you to see where you put these people out. Well, his worldview, he had made an idol out of it pretty much, and he was telling me that he thought that people should have these things. I said, well, what about the people who have $1,500 a month car notes and they don't have health insurance? You think we should pay for them too? Oh, I don't really want to get into that. I said, well, you're the one who brought it up. Aren't there people who make an idol out of vain things before the care for their own bodies? I would say yes. Okay. Does that sometimes apply to us at times? Yes, it does. And we need to repent when the Lord brings these things to our attention. Now, this is a little bit of cheating here, but uh, we just finished Colossians in our small group. And one of the things that I really, it really hit me as I was studying the book of Colossians was just the, the intimacy with, with the church at Ephesus, right? So they were located about 100 miles apart from Colossae and Ephesus. And Paul's writings seem very similar. If you look at this verse that I just read to the other, you notice he's quoting the Decalogue here, right? Obviously, when he's talking about idolatry and covetousness, right? He's not giving them a new command. So for all those people who say, well... You know, the Old Testament is, you know, that's the Old Testament. Well, this is the New Testament. No, it's actually the Old Testament is what they would have understood it to be. So in these writing styles that he was, he was writing to the congregation, they were very similar. They had differences. The culture was similar, the trade routes. But Paul was proclaiming to the, to the Colossians the preeminence and supremacy of Christ. And he was exercising these hardcore polemics where he was strongly attacking the false teachers to point out their error. So in Ephesians, we know that there were false teachers there too. We know about Diana of the Ephesians, right? She's not mentioned in the book of Ephesians, but we know about her, right? And the theme is also Christ-centered, but it's more focused on God's sovereignty and salvation and the purpose of the picture of the church and how she was the, she is to wage war. We're just finishing up that book in Sunday school. But no matter how similar or different these congregations were, the battle that was not unique to them or any congregation, including this one, is the lawless deed of idolatry. It's lawlessness. Idolatry is lawlessness. It was a crime in the Old Covenant. And people lost their lives. Rightfully so. So no one who is unrepentant in practicing this sin or any has any inheritance in the kingdom of God. Now, this should make us pause for a minute and say, well, what is Paul saying? You're telling me we, we, are, we practice idolatry sometimes? Yes. But what does he mean by practice here has no inheritance? Well, practicing unrepentant sin, it means to make a lifestyle of approving and excusing one's behavior of lawlessness in a understanding that there's nothing wrong in what I'm doing. There's nothing wrong. God's okay. Matter of fact, God endorses what I do. No change is needed. No change of mind, no change of direction. 
And see, when people think this way, it's ultimately because the spirit is not giving them life. Okay, when you hear people talk and, you know, they dig their heels in with their sin and they say, yes, God is okay with this. You know, I just got through telling my barber the other day, they were, they love to brag about their lifestyles, their, their double lifestyles, how they cheat on their wives and all this. And I just say, you know, you grew up in church, right? Yes. I said, well, you know, that's not right. Oh, we, we don't hear nothing about that. You're the only dude that comes around here and talks about being faithful to his wife. I said, well, you know, and I learned this from Marcy Pro. He said, you know the law of God. You keep playing, you're going to pay one day. It's that simple. And, you know, the conversation goes quiet. But in order for him to covet that woman, what does he have to do? He has to covet her, commit the sin of adultery. And what other sin is he committing? Idolatry. Idolatry. So and when it comes to the graven image part, the Hebrew word pesel means the image of an idol. So when I studied that, I was like, wow, I don't see any of the uh, translations that I'm aware of, at least off the top of my head, that says you shall not make for yourself a carved idol, right? It says usually graven images, right? And we'll see why it says that here in a minute. But one of my prayers for us, and I think all of us need to be praying this for each other, is that there's no other thing or creature that is worthy of our worship. May the Lord help us to constantly see and meditate on the fact that it is Christ and Christ alone who deserves all of our praise and all of our worship. I have to tell you, I'm really thankful for the songs that we sing at this church. There are times when I come in here and I'm not in a good mood, you know, I've had a bad week, and the Lord will set my heart right just from some of the songs we sing here because we're singing scripture. And... I feel bad for a lot of the people that uh, came out of the churches that we used to go to. They think, oh, you know, that that contemporary music, it's so this, it's so that. Well, they're ignorant. They don't know that we are singing scripture. You know, we're, there's true worship going on in this church. And, you know, only God's elect will be a part of that true worship wherever they are. So when it comes to the second commandment, we know it's not a suggestion, Right. It's a command. It's an imperative. It's a prohibition to make anything in heaven, on the earth, in the water, under the earth. Okay, Exodus 24 through 6, I'll read it again. Separate from the catechism, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousand, thousands to, excuse me, mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. So you shall not make a pesel for yourself. An image, this is why I say idolatry, because that's pretty much what it means. Examples of carved images or inscriptions, carving in the likeness of a human animal or even like a plant or anything, right? 
the Lord gives us much detail and how he's instructed us not to make these things, not only in this text, but throughout the scriptures, he does this. So we'll address that in a moment. A side note is many theologians have come to different conclusions about the division of the first and second commandments. I talked about this coming in. Uh, Pastor Paul had addressed this a few weeks back. The way the commands were divided are not a test of orthodoxy, but rather of exegesis. How do you? How are you breaking down what's in front of you? It's a well-known fact that you know the Jewish order, the Roman Catholic, and the Lutherans differ from the Protestant formation of the chronology of the commandments themselves. So if you look at them side by side, they're going to look different. They're going to look different. The first and second table of the law are going to look different. Okay, similar but different. Um, I've heard the argument that the Roman Catholic view, just like the other view, uh, the Lutheran view is kind of more after the Deuteronomy uh, part in Deuteronomy 5 where the law is given, and then the other one is after Exodus, obviously. So not a big deal, not a big deal at all. I talked about Augustine earlier and, you know, how there's this debate about, well, you know, is this one or two? At the end of the day, what does it really matter, right? I mean, only those who have a heart that is circumcised by God, will have a desire to obey this for the right reasons, right? I think we can all agree on that. So the Protestant view is the view we will represent here tonight. The preamble, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. So God declares his sovereignty and his decree of their freedom. God decreed that they would have that freedom. Okay, what was the first thing he told Moses? He said, you go over there and go tell them, let my people go. But I'm going to harden his heart. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. I always get into that discussion, that debate with one of my Calvary Chapel buddies. He's like, no, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. I said, well, God said he was going to harden his heart before Pharaoh was even in the picture, man. Before any of the interaction took place. So when I say that God decreed their freedom, he brought those circumstances to them. To, they put them in slavery. Just like he did with Joseph, right? And he had a purpose for it. God always has a purpose for what he does. You shall have no other gods before me. His rightful ownership of them as his covenant people. We are not to have any other gods before God. He said that to the ancient people of God. He says that to the people of God right now. God does not change. Does he? Does he change? No. All right, well, I hope he doesn't. I hope y'all believe he doesn't. All right. So we can hear the second commandment, you know, when it's broken. You know, one of the most common ways we hear this is when you're preaching the gospel to somebody. And this is just kind of a way somebody would think, oh, maybe it's a little bit of an offshoot. But no, it's actually a way that it's commonly broken. When you say to someone, repent and believe the gospel, and they say, oh, you know, that, 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 that's great for you, but my God would never send anyone to hell forever. Would you send your kids to hell forever? I say, wait, I thought you told me you never broke any of the commands. You just broke the first one right now. You just, you just had another God before him. And then... You just made an image you imagined of what God is like 
And that's the God you're worshiping. So you just broke the first and second commandment right there. But when people tell you that, don't they always say, well, my God wouldn't do this or that. And I'm like, what God is this? What God is this? I don't know that God. The Bible doesn't know that God. Who told you that God is like that? And they have no answer. It's their vain imagination. Okay, As a Roman Catholic growing up, I had all kinds of weird beliefs about God. And it wasn't until I got saved when I looked back and cringed like, whoa. Then you see other people doing it and you see, man, wait a minute. Is this Roman Catholicism? Or is this universalism, Hinduism, every ism under the sun, right? Humanism, you know, Roman Catholicism is some really wicked, wicked doctrine. I know there's Roman Catholics who are saved in spite of, but I don't believe it's very many. I know a lot of Roman Catholics, and I don't know very many that are actually Christians. The ones that are consistent hate God with a passion, but they love their own God that they've made in their own mind. A much more suitable God, one of their vain, wicked imagination that will put Yahweh to the side and lift up their own, their own God. So the second commandment makes it crystal clear that we're not to make any graven images at all. Okay. This means not only for ourselves, but the way that we are to approach God. That was in Pink's comment earlier. You know, and that was one of the things. It's a blessing when you write out your notes. And then you read all these other guys and you're like, man, all these other guys are saying the exact same thing I'm saying. It's just a blessing when you see that. You know, now, obviously, there's a lot of heresy out there. And I'm not going to consult heretics when I pick up things to prepare. At least I, I would hope we would, we would not even bother with what they have to say unless it's to criticize it. So if one holds to a view... Sorry, let me skip back here for a minute. So when God gave these commands, you know, I always run into this a lot. The second commandment, I have a, a cousin, uh, Stephen knows him, Hebrew Israelite. He said, well, God gave those commands to the Israelites. Those don't apply to us. Sure they do. Sure they do. So anytime you get into the law, and you hear this is the second commandment, and someone exclusively says this was for Israel, well, yes, that's who it was given to in context, but it applies to everyone. And we'll learn that later as we read in uh, Exodus 34. Every creature in human history, without exception, will answer to God for the breaking of his law. And so in our eschatology, we debate a lot about two kingdom theology and reconstructionism and all this stuff. But I don't think anybody disagrees that everyone who faces God will be judged by his law. I don't think any, any of us say anything different on that. And you either face God on your own and you'll be damned or, you, or your advocate with the father faces him, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So even though the law of God was given to the ancient people of God, the law most definitely is binding on on people, even believers, even believers, you would say it's binding on us. Well, in what sense? Well, in Second Corinthians five, when it says we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well pleasing to Him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body, 
according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So how does God define good or bad? Well, how are we well-pleasing to God? Jesus said, if you love me, then break my commandments. I don't think that's pleasing to God, right? What's pleasing to God is obedience. Okay, if you love me, then keep my commandments. That's how we express our love for God. Okay, love does a neighbor no harm. Therefore, love is a fulfillment of the law, Romans 13, 8. It's a boundary that keeps us safe. I love this passage right here in, in uh, 1 Samuel 22. It says, as for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven, and he is a shield to all who trust in him. Okay? In order for us to obey God, well, how does the hymn go? Trust and obey, right? In order for us to obey God, we must trust God. We're not going to obey the law in your own strength. You know, you're just not going to do it. So the law must also be binding or else how can there be a judgment, right? I think Paul, when he was talking about that in Romans 3, said, how then will God judge the world, right? He's talking about righteousness and unrighteousness. And we know all unrighteousness is sin, right? What is sin? Sin is lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So God will hold men culpable for breaking his law. We know this from the book of Revelation, when the books are open, okay, the book of life, and then the other books are open. It doesn't say the book of death, but... At least that's what I think it is. And anyone not found written in the Lamb's book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Well, what are they judged by? They're judged by the law. So back to the second command, the Pacel. In this command, the Lord tells us that he's jealous. So when he, we're not to make anything to resemble anything in heaven or earth or in the water or under the earth. But notice what he says here when he visits the iniquity of the fathers upon the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Of those who hate me. You ever stop sometimes and you do like a reverse? You reverse a verse sometimes and you're like, wow, if that's true, then obviously if you said that thing, if you said that same verse a different way, the opposite would be true, right? Well, you think of curses, right? Stu's not here, but I think this is the right doctrine of cursing and blessings, right? Generational curses are a real thing. They are a real thing. They cannot be broken apart from God's electing grace. So what do I mean by that? I'm talking about people. We, we all inherit Adam's sin, right? But we're sinners both original and actual we actually sin so there are a lot of sins that i see my children commit that they observationally saw me commit and then they continue them and that's why a lot of times when i'm praying i'm like lord deliver my children from me sometimes you know because i'm a sinner and i sin and i make bad examples for my children oftentimes okay and so do you so do you. you. You need to realize that. Mommy and daddy are sinners too. Mommy and daddy need forgiveness. Mommy and daddy need to humble ourselves and say, we were wrong. Please forgive me. That's real. That's real. Don't look at us and, and, and expect to see Christ. We're not your standard. Jesus is. Okay? So these generational curses 
that God visits these descendants who hate him. Why do they hate him? Well, I think it's very similar. So we ask the question, well, why do we love God? Why do we love God? Because we loved him first? No, because he first loved us. So are men born hating God? Absolutely they are. Absolutely they are. And when they remain that way, it's because God has never turned away his wrath from them. Okay, and when we read in Romans 9, you ought to hear some of the gymnastics done in that book. It's, it's, in, it's insane, man. And I'm like, okay, let's throw Romans 9 to the side. Can we read 2 Timothy? That in a great house, there are many vessels, some for honor, some for dishonor, some for common use. Same concept. And it's before they were even born. So we think about that. So what does that really mean? So people who are destined for destruction, could they not say we hate him because he first hated us? Actually, they can. <laughs> now, thankfully, we don't know who those people are. But there are some wicked people out there who are damned. And are waiting for the day of destruction. They were prepared. You know, like I was reading through Job in the one-year Bible when it said the wicked are prepared for the day of doom. They shall be brought out on the day of wrath. And I'm like, man, what else can that mean? You know, and I know a lot of people, I send those verses to a lot of my friends, and they get frustrated. And they say, I don't know what that means. And I'm like, brother, I believe I do. It's uncomfortable, but let's walk through this together, Okay. So these commands that we see here, God says that he reserves mercy. He says, but there are those who God keeps mercy, shows mercy to thousands who love him and keep his commandments. The word here for mercy is a word that we should mark down and understand and ask the Lord to prayerfully develop in our hearts and in our minds. Okay, I first learned it from one of my Jewish buddies and I never understood what it was. But it kind of stuck with me. It's the word hased. Any of y'all ever heard that word before? Hased. Okay, well, you heard that? You know, you've heard that before, haven't you? Hased. Steadfast love, right? Okay, goodness, kindness, especially as to extend it to the lowly and miserable. The lowly and miserable. God shows mercy and pity and everlasting love towards them. His steadfast love is based on his mercy. And it is from eternity past. And it's repeated in Numbers 14 as well as Numbers, uh, excuse me, Deuteronomy 5. It says, and now I pray, let the, let the power of my Lord be great. Just as you have spoken, saying the Lord is long-suffering. And abounding in hesed, steadfast love, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. But he by no means clears the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the, to the third and fourth generation. Deuteronomy 5, you shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But showing mercy has said to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Okay, so it flows right into what Jesus told the disciples. If you love me, then keep my commandments. 
If you love me, then obey me is what he's saying, right? So we think of, of breaking the second command. May the Lord impress upon our hearts that, trust me, I'm not saying you can't enjoy things in life, but I don't think that's, that's kind of our issue as Americans, right? We, we usually go the other way. Where we, 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 where we don't indulge, we, we don't indulge just enough. We, we indulge in excess, okay? And I'm sitting up here as somebody telling you that it's a struggle that I have, okay? But I love what our brother uh, David said in Sunday school. He said, if you're struggling, that's good. <laughs> that's good. You know, I, I remember I heard MacArthur preach at one time. And I was like, man, all these people try to accuse him of being so legalistic and this. He said, man, if you're struggling... That's a good thing. It means you're alive. You're alive. So when we break God's commands, not if, when we break God's commands and we commit sin, we're not expressing our love for God. We're not. We're not expressing our love for God. I'm not when, I, when I'm sinning. Are you? You can't be. You can't be. Okay. But that's when we go back to the throne of grace and cry out and say to our God, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Forgive me, Lord. You know, he promised to wash us and to restore us. Okay, and if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, all of it. Okay. But we also, when we confess, we can't just get into this Roman Catholic mode. We need to confess and forsake our sin. Okay? Confess and forsake our sin. So some of the examples that we see in Scripture of the second commandment being broken, and this is in the catechism. So after I had already done this, I realized, man, this comes up later in one of the other questions. So. When I get to it later, Lord willing, can just check it off as done already because I don't want to go back and redo it. But Exodus 32, can everybody turn there for a minute here? So Exodus 32, 1 through 10, if, if any of you have the uh, New King James audio Bible in theater, if you don't have that, I would really recommend you get it. Because there's sometimes when I listen to that when I'm on the road and I literally can get into a car accident <laughs> because... It's done in audio theater, and you can hear, like, the waves of the sea coming up on the shore. And, you know, you can hear it just it's being acted out. So you, your mind really goes there like you're almost like in Bible times. And it's powerful. And I remember listening to this. It really hit me um, what happened here. So in Exodus 32, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and he fashioned it with an engraving tool. Okay, keep that in your mind. 
and made a molten calf. Then they said, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Then they rose early on the next day, offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, go. Get down, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made themselves a molten calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them and I will make of you a great nation. So clearly the people broke the second commandment, right? They, they should have known. They should have known that legally they were in trouble. Okay, it's not they could have. No, they should have known. Very clear. They should have known. So remember, the reason why they should have known better, because what, just 12 chapters before in chapter 20, where do we read? The second commandment. It was revealed in Sinai, right? So when the Lord said they have corrupted themselves and turned aside quickly from what I had commanded them, he's saying they didn't listen to me. They did not listen to me. And Aaron took these, these gifts that God gave him, this engraving tool, and he made what? A graven what? Image. You know what blows me away? I talk to some believers, and they talk about the Old Testament as if that was those rebellious people. Some people look at that text and they say, oh, man, how could they do that? Like all these miracles and the law was with them and they heard it and, you know, all these evil acts of Aaron and the people. And I'm like, well, the answer is pretty simple. One, you shouldn't be saying that because they're just as depraved as we are. Just as depraved as we are. You sit up there and you say that it's pretty self-righteous comments to say that. You know, I remember when I first got saved and I used to hear people say, yeah, Israel was this and Israel was that. I remember I was showering one night after a long day and I just kept getting in these thoughts. You are Israel. And I didn't even believe in covenant theology back then. I was like, wow, you are Israel. It's like, man, why am I thinking that? <laughs> right? I think it's just the spirit is merciful sometimes to us, you know, in spite of really bad teaching. Because the covenant people are, of God are true Israel. It's that simple. So the Lord answers our prayers and works miraculously in, in our lives at times. And what happens to us, our hearts grow dull and then we begin to sin. Isn't it amazing how sometimes you get through some of the biggest victories where you, you know, you've been praying for something and God delivers. And then all of a sudden you're like, ah, <laughs> put your Bible on the shelf, put your prayer light down, take your armor off. Ugh. I'm going to chill now. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. We're in a war. We're in a war. The church is the church militant. We are not yet the church triumphant. 
So the uniqueness of this text is that Aaron took the skill that God blessed him with, took the gold, made an, a graven image, and angered the Lord by breaking his law. Another example is in Romans 1. If you turn there in Romans 1, and this one's pretty unique. This is Romans 1, verse, beginning in verse 20. Just amazing how there's so many different ways. I mean, when you prepare a message like this, you really can't get through all of it. And I'm going to have to start going fast here in a second. But So I'll start reading. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful and their foolish hearts were darkened, professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. You know, we can get into natural law, natural theology and all that, but right now, um, this is a ontological example of images or idolatry in the mind. Ontology is the exact definition of existence. So God basically took, he is showing us right here that people took things that exist and made them like God. That's idolatry. That's idolatry, okay? We can go into a whole separate message about how we can make idols out of food or money or your wife or your husband or your job. Whatever it is, your clothing, your weight, your fitness, and keep going, your pastor, your church, the idols just keep coming. See, if they can make these out of images of the mind and things that they see, what does that mean for us? If they did in Romans 1, so then... What do you have to do to do this? You have to suppress the truth and unrighteousness to break the law of God. Taking things that exist, ontological, and making those things out to be God with your own evil imagination. Okay? So let us not make the error of thinking that idolatry is limited to carved images, because it's not. Another example we don't think of is the sin of rebellion. Rebellion. Rebellion, 1 Samuel 15, 22. You don't have to turn there, I'll read it. Then Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Think about that. Sacrifices and obedience. You would think, oh man, sacrifice is obedience. Now keep listening. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord he has also rejected you from being king so when we read this text this exchange here obviously Samuel's exchange with Saul gives us a further insight of the sin of idolatry okay now I want you to really pay attention here because this should remind us of the proper use of the law in our lives. 
Rebellion and stubbornness to God are sin. So what was the first thing God told Moses about the breaking of the second commandment that Aaron and the people did? What was the first thing he said to them? He said, I've seen these people. And indeed, they're what? Stiff-necked people. He wasn't referring to them not sleeping on a silly posturepedic bed. <laughs> Did you get a good night's rest, Jeff? Oh, man, your neck's, neck's so stiff right now. He meant they were stubborn. They were stubborn. <laughs> Jeff back there clowning already, man. I, I opened up. Yeah, there you go. But the same stubbornness is the sin of idolatry. When we dig our heels in, you know what we're saying? I'm God. That's what we're saying. When we dig our heels in, we're saying, I'm going to have it my way, like Burger King. <laughs> you know, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And in our marriages, and our relationships, and our work, there's times when I'm like, I'm like, Get after this, dude. Stubbornness. <laughs> I made an idol out of myself. You make an idol out of yourself when you do that. So the scriptures speak about our vain imagination at times. And how we come up with these things. And when this happens, we rebel. So sometimes our, our depraved minds can simply imagine these images that just cause us to commit all kinds of different adultery, just endless. So the remedy here, and we're almost done, in 1 Peter 1, 13, wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So girding up the loins of your mind and being sober is how we should live and approach our God. This is how God delivers us from idols. You want to be kept from idols? You know what John said, right? He said in 1 John 5, 21, little children, keep yourself from idols. Okay? You know what the Greek there is? Fulasso. You fulasso, right? I was reading that. I was like, wow, fulasso, right? Fulasso, protect yourself from idols. Don't put yourself in a position where you're going to commit idolatry, right? Protect yourself. Keep yourself from idols. How do we do that? Well, in the previous verse, it said God has given us an understanding. And part of that understanding is to gird up the loins of our minds. Okay, to gird is figurative for to get ready. Ready yourself. Prepare yourself. How do we do that? Well, the only way the Christian is to train for battle is to nosedive and remain into the scriptures. What did Jesus say? If you remain in my word, then you are my disciples. Then you are my disciples. Okay? So backtracking to the second commandment, we're almost done here. The law or commandments from the Israelites received from Moses. Now, we all know this because the people of God throughout all time, like I said, we're going to answer to God for the way we handle his word, the way we teach his word. The second commandment prohibits these things, and it must be understood from verses 4 through 6, I'm talking about Exodus 20, about, you know, the law. And we're not to bow down or to serve these things. So what's required in the second commandment is it's required receiving, observing, and keeping pure and entire all such religious worship and ordinances 
that are put forth in the word. In Deuteronomy 32, he said to them, set your hearts on the word which I testify among you today, which you shall command your children to be careful to observe all the words of this law. Okay, so God's saying, be careful to obey my law. Moses spoke to the people admonishing them to be careful to do what's in the law. Now, this is Deuteronomy. Okay, Deuteronomy, the word deutero, meaning second, the word nomos, meaning law. It's the second giving of God's law. So remember that the law for us is not some external exercise. Merely, okay, it begins inwardly and works its way out, okay? Psalm 19, 7 through 9 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statues of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. This flows from the sentiments of a regenerate heart. Only someone with a regenerate heart wants to love the law of God. If you love God's law, it's because you love God. And when you break it, you know you're disgusted because you know that you are not pleasing your God. That, that's what I'm saying. So when people say, well, we love the law. Yeah, we love the law not to be saved. Of course, we, we shouldn't even have to say that as believers. We know that, right? We should know that. But to love God's law and to keep his commands, I think of Psalm 1 when it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. This only comes from a regenerate heart that thinks this way. Acts 2.42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. This would be regulative worship. Regulated by what? By the scriptures. What in the scripture regulates us? The law of God. His commandments. <laughs> 56. What is forbidden in the second commandment? The second commandment forbiddeth the worshiping of God by images. Or by any other way that is not appointed in his word. It was a big I want to say debate, but I was listening to some R.C. Sproul on that, and I was just like, hmm. He was kind of, so he has a lot of images and paintings in his church, and I don't want to accuse R.C. of idolatry. I don't think uh, that he was promoting idolatry, but I definitely disagreed with his stance that he was okay with people having pictures of Jesus. And I was like, uh, I don't know that I would do that, but can I really say that well, either you, you think someone's right or they're wrong on a position, right? I wouldn't take that position, okay? So the second uh, commandment is that we are to worship God in a way uh, that he has prescribed, not in, a, not in a way that he has not prescribed. So when we look at Deuteronomy 4, I think this will kind of spell it out here. It says, take careful heed to yourselves, for you saw no form when the Lord spoke to you at Horeb. Out of the midst of the fire, lest you act corruptly and make for yourselves a carved image, okay, Hassel, in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, 
or the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, or the likeness of any fish that is in the water beneath of the earth. And take heed, lest you lift your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun, the moon, the stars, all the hosts of them, you feel driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord your God has given to all peoples under the whole heaven as a heritage. Okay, everyone is culpable of this. The Lord has spoken. We're not to worship God and make for ourselves another avenue, another picture, another image, another hassel in the form or any shape of anything. Okay, Exodus 32, we already addressed all of that. Okay, so that brings us to the last question. What are the reasons annexed to the second commandment? The reasons annexed to the second commandment are God's sovereignty over us, his propriety in us, and the zeal he hath to his own worship. We are subordinate to our king. We are subordinate to our king, okay? Our job as believers is to love our God, and in doing so, we place ourselves under his sovereign hand within the bounds of his love, his law, his law. That's what we are to do, okay? Okay? Last, uh, we got a few more. I'll read Exodus 34. But you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, cut down their wooden images, for you shall worship no other God. For the Lord, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they play the harlot with their gods, and make sacrifice to their gods, and one of them invites you to eat of his sacrifice. And you take of his daughters for your sons and his daughters play the harlot with their gods and make your sons play the harlot with their gods. You shall make no molden gods for yourselves. The feast of unleavened bread you shall keep. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you in the appointed time of the month of Abib. For in the month of Abib you came out from Egypt. Pretty straightforward here. Worship God only. Do not worship other gods. Do not, has nothing to do with ethnicity. Do not cross these other inter, not denomination, interfaith. <laughs> you know, they have, they have whole structures out here called interfaith this, interfaith that. You already know what that stands for. It stands for lawlessness. That's what it stands for. Psalm 45, you are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured out on your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one, with your glory and your majesty. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. The Lord is the one who is the righteous one. Okay? His, his kingdom is forever and ever. This is uh, quoted in Hebrews 1. We get to worship God. And we are going to answer. We're both, we get to worship God. And yes, we are obligated to worship God. So, you know, people say, well, you know, we don't want to get into that. We're obligated. No, you are obligated. You are obligated. Worship is obligatory, period. But you also need to understand you should do that from a willing heart because God has made you willing. He has made you willing. So the king will greatly desire your beauty because he is Lord. Worship him. The real remedy to idolatry is true worship. John 4, 23 and 24. But the hour is coming and now is 
when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. In spirit and in truth. A heart that is set on Christ will understand that when we sin, we cry out to our God. And we say, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. We are to meditate on God and his perfect, pure, infallible, and inerrant word. I'll conclude with this. Exodus 15, 11. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. That's the God we serve. And so may the Lord help us to worship him in a true, in, in spirit and in truth in only that way. And not to try to be some inventors of our own vain imagination. So I'll take your questions. We have a few more minutes here before it's eight. not make an idol out of the calf if Moses was still up on the mountain and hadn't told them yet? So, if you go back to... Yeah, that's a good question. Okay, so... You know... When uh, he brought down... When he was coming down, yeah, they were already in sin. But we know that they would have known because of in Exodus 32... God says that, hey, go get down. He said, your people who you brought out of Egypt, right? He said that they're, they're doing against what I commanded them. So back in 20, yes, he was receiving the law, right? But at the end of the day, uh, this goes back to the whole Sabbath murder discussion. A lot of these things were given before the command. So yes, you make a good point that uh, the stuff that they had in chapter 20, they had even before chapter 20. Because if you look, go back to Genesis chapter 9. Well, if you go to verse 6, how do we know that uh, murder is wrong? Do we have to wait to get to chapter 20 in Exodus? No. He says, by man, if you shed man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. Because man is made in the what? In Mahio Day, right? In the image of God. So I believe that um, off the top of my head, I'll have to go back and look, but I know that from that text, uh, we know that God told us that he had commanded them against him. Yes? I was going to say, I was just trying to look at it too. I'm not sure if uh, Moses was fully gone, right? Um, if you, if you uh, look at verse 18, it said, Now all the people saw the thunder and flash and lightning and the sound of the trumpets and the mountain smoking, and the people were afraid and trembled. They stood up before and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen. Mm -hmm. But do not let God speak to us lest we die. Yeah. Moses said to the people, do not fear. For God has come to test you that the fear may be before you and that you may not sin. The people stood afar off while Moses drew near in the thick cloud, I mean the thick darkness where God was. So I think Moses kind of went up after that. Because they, they, when he was given those commands, they that's what it looked like. I mean, maybe, maybe I missed the part, but as I'm saying yeah. I don't think it's as clear because, um, 
But I know that whatever interaction Moses had with God, that they received it somehow because the Lord tells us they received it, right? So in the chronology of, remember, we have chapters and verses aren't inspired, right? But in, in that very instance, God is telling Moses that, hey, they're doing against what I commanded them. Well, to me, when that took place is less relevant than, than it took place. So we can go back and study and look at it. We may not find it, but I'm, you know, I, I get settled on things like that where I'm just like, you know what? That's a good question. Um, I'll definitely go back and look, but yeah, I think 32 gives us the answer right there. Does that make sense? Your answer definitely makes sense. I, okay. I don't know why, but in my subconscious, I just... No, that was a good, that was a really good question. Because I said that, I think, back in 20, they would have known, but 32 yeah. answers that, though. Yeah, the, the Ten Commandments, like, when they get put onto the tablets, they're codified, but that doesn't mean they're invented in that moment. They existed before, as John was saying. Yeah. And these are people who just got saved out of slavery from this God. So the most condemning sentence in chapter 32 is uh, the first verse where it says, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So it, it, it really makes you think about their hearts, that this God who had just rescued them and who had said, I will be your God and you will be my people, this God, they're ready to replace him already. So the hesed that we were talking about, this mm -hmm. steadfast love, was something that God gave to his people. But it's something these people just as, as soon as they get tired or upset about something, they're ready to change him out for somebody yeah. else. Well, and Stephen so, also read earlier that they were like, they were looking for Moses as their assurance, yeah. even in comparison to God. They were like, you will listen to this other God is going to, will kill us. Yeah. And so they were already not, <laughs> they were already being disobedient. And I wonder how much of that, like, I always struggle with that text, not to believe it, but I'll compare it to when Paul was on the road to Damascus and, you know, the people that were with him heard, but they didn't quite understand, right? And it came out like thunderings as well, right? It makes me think of how many of those people were actually regenerate, right, at the time. It's like, you know, the natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God, right? They're foolishness to him because they're spiritually appraised, right, or discerned. So that's a good question. I'll go back and I'll look and try to sharpen my pencil and try to see if I can get you a better answer. But uh, I don't know off the top of my head. Yes, and thank you. I don't know is okay. Yes? You know, Nick stole my thunder on that first verse there. But, you know, I think even later on when you go down, when you see when Moses was standing at the end, to me, when the Levites came out, Told them to walk around and just start slaughtering people, right? I think they killed but almost, I don't know what it says here, I think almost 3,000 or something like that. Killed 3,000 of them. Um, I think God pretty much knew that they disobeyed. They knew they disobeyed, right? That's that whole thing. We know we did wrong, and God slaughtered them for it. Mm -hmm. uh, dropped about 3,000 of them. So, I mean, they had been traveling around for how long? And <laughs> first chance they get, they disobey over and over and over again. Oh, yeah. I think the second command also has a lot of gravity, uh, especially to those who try to preach the word of God. Because in a sense, you are putting before the people an image of the Lord. And if you're not bringing that image straight from the scripture, then you're in grave danger of committing the second commandment violation in the pulpit. 
Yes. By showing something that is less than that. I think that's one of the key features of this graven image error is that you can never make God what he, you can never make an image of God that represents him. Yeah, that's right. You're always doing something less than God. So if that becomes the, your object of what God is, then you're now worshiping something that's less than God. It's not the full God. Well, and that was, that, that's a good point because there was so much more I wanted to, it went further than I, I should have, but there are times when God prescribed like God theophanies and Christophanies where he came in a form, right? He took the body. Um, the bronze serpent. Lifted up. The bronze serpent, exactly. There's all these different... So in reading all that in those commentaries, I was like, okay, that would be another message all, all by itself, right? So I didn't want to cram all that in, but I know skeptics. I have a lot of buddies that uh, that bring that up. Like even my Hebrew Israelite cousin, he says, oh, Jesus is an idol. There's no way y'all should be worshiping Jesus. It's idolatry. Muslims say that too. Well, the word became flesh, NRK in the logos. In the beginning was the word. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us, right? So they don't, they don't have the spirit of God. They don't believe that. We can explain that to them. We should. We can argue with them on those things. But God has to reveal those things to people. They, there's a lot of people way smarter than I am that, are, that don't know God. And we're talking about a message sent of God. So if this is God's message, yeah. I mean, the second commandment, he can't misrepresent himself. I mean, he's going to, he's going to be truthful about who, what he's showing to the people. Right. Uh, but if you don't believe in the Trinity, then I can see why that would be a stumbling block for some people. You know what I mean? So like you said, yes. I was just going to add to what, uh, what Nick was saying, right? You know, when he was talking about, well, everything, every image we make of God would be less than. Yes, right. It's amazing. Like, you know, we think about even the worship, right? We look throughout the Old Testament when God told these guys to make an altar a lot of times. But he told them, hey, but don't put a chisel to it, right? So you just put these rocks that God placed here and use that for your altar. Like, mm -hmm. don't, you can't make it better than God has done. No. And so, you know what I mean? Even those things that we may overlook, like, hey, why, why couldn't they put a chisel to it? Why couldn't they make it look nice and pretty? But it was like, <laughs> God made this. Exactly. Made him. And that's the problem. Isn't that our struggle all the time? It's like, I remember I was like, I'm into these hot rides. I was telling Nick, I was like, man, I did all this work to this car. And it's just like, this feeling of excitement is gone. <laughs> it's like, I was saying, and he's like, well, brother, you already know why, right? But it doesn't stop us from going down. And it's not like these endeavors are wrong, but. It's, it's when people get bent out of shape, when we get bent out of shape, over something in this world as if it's greater than God, right? It's like, how many times do we have to learn this lesson? Well, as many times as God has to teach it to us, right? Because we're stiff-necked and stubborn at times, too. So what can replace God? I, man, you preach a whole nother message on that, right? For real. Yeah. So uh, I understand point you were making is making these uh, images of God in worship, right? Yeah. But what about the images in kids' shows of Christ or, you know, like you said earlier, pictures of Jesus and things like that, right? I mean, yeah. it, is that a violation of the second command to, to say this is what we're using to represent what Jesus is or what he looks like in this picture or in this show or whatever, like, it, is that right? 
And I mean, is that is that a violation of the Second Commandment to, to you know, me and Stephen were talking about it earlier this weekend, and it was mm -hmm. just like, if it's in a movie, right, it's like, well, somebody has to play the character. Well, well the character is obviously a man, but should we put all the details into it to make it look like, okay, here is the image of God? Or should it be more of like an unfocused lens of saying, here's, you know, a general thing that we, that we can't deny, right? To say that God is a man and, you know, he's here in this time. But when, when we look at, you know, the finer details of painting pictures of Christ in different ways, right? Not like a, a literal picture, but, you know, in different arts and stuff, like, is that, is that a violation of the second commandment? Well, that's kind of the whole thing with R.C. Sproul. Um, his position was no, it's not. And I think uh, when I understood his position, so I wouldn't call him an idolater for that because um, he's taken the position that this is a descriptive thing. When you get into a show, like a cartoon or something like that, they're not having a worship service. They're not specifically doing it that way. Now, could people make an idol out of that? Of course they could. Well, would the problem be with the actual show or would it be with the person, right? So that's a good question. Um, um, to say that one way or the other, like I said, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that I don't do, I don't watch those things. My kids watch Story Keepers and stuff like that, right? And then they've, you know, depicted Jesus with the long hair and the sandals and the big old robe, you know, and they've watched, huh? Blue eyes. Yeah. <laughs> no, he didn't have blue eyes. He did look Middle Eastern on this one, you know. But is that sin? I know some brothers, you know, just like, okay, I wouldn't do the images in the church, but I have no problem watching Story Keepers. Am I inconsistent? Maybe. I don't know. If you want to nail me on that, brother, then show me some good scripture and I'll listen to you. But maybe I am inconsistent on that. But I don't have a problem um, looking at that because I think it's describing, it's kind of narrating the story and it's a little bit different in my understanding. I was going to say now, in, in your opinion, because this was this came up in, in our conversation, right? I was like, you know, the hard part is when we see these pictures of Jesus, they look the same, right? Like we have ascribed this image to him, right? You know, um, well, maybe he isn't, maybe, you know, some people try to get more politically correct. Maybe he isn't a white guy with a blonde hair and blue eyes, right? But he still got this long hair with, you know, this beard like you say, the white robe and sandals with the red sash across them. I mean, it's clear that that's supposed to be Jesus, right? And I was saying maybe I said maybe one thing we should do if people are going to make these images, make them look more like everybody else, right? I mean, you know, um, because that is one thing we even talk about in Isaiah, right? It's like, you know, you wouldn't, he was really kind of nondescript. You wouldn't even look upon him like that. He was right? comely. It was nothing yeah, in, right? that we should yeah. behold him. He wasn't good looking. Right. Yeah, he was I mean, a rugged-looking dude, I mean, if, if, you know, but he was he's God, so he ain't just a dude, right? Yeah, but you know, it's like we always make this image, like this is the image. And I, I well, understand kids kind of being confused or even grew up with it. Like, you know, I, I say this to say, like, one day I was talking to my daughter, and we were talking about it, and she was like, Jesus is white. I'm like, no, he's not, babe. Jesus is white. She, she was like, yes, he is. Right? It's like, well, I'm, and I'm explaining to her, he's not, right? These are just pictures, but in her mind, Jesus looks like that. You know, I've heard so much stuff about this, like the woke movement pounces all over that, right? Like, and especially, like, my family, the ones who, who do not know the Lord, who hate him, they just, 
oh, you're white Jesus, and look at all these pictures, and they bring up the black Madonna, and you know, all these pictures of Mary in Europe that were dark-skinned, and I'm like, who cares? I said, Jesus looked like Barney, and he was purple, I'd worship him. He's God, dude. What does it matter what, what, what shade of skin? And so then, then they bring up, oh, well, this commentary here says that, you know, the, the, the imagery of Daniel's is, is not figurative or some of its imagery and you know that he did have hair like wool and he did have skin like this and i'm like look dude you're not understanding i don't care Absolutely. okay what i do care about is i remember when um we had this discussion one time at all church and john mincy he was just like you know judging by the climate of the weather said looking at me i'm white he said Jesus did not look like me. He said, because I look at people in the Middle East and they usually have a hard time under the skin staying light. He said, but I don't care about that. <laughs> you know, and I think that should be the attitude. People kind of bring the stuff up and I don't want to say it's just a distraction, but I don't know. You know, at the end of the day, I think that, yes, Western Christianity has made Jesus out to be white. Okay, um, even... And like he's saying, I mean, just in, in, in a certain type of image, right? You can tell no matter what skin color he is that that's Jesus because we have this picture that's been painted on us to say this is what Jesus looks like. He's got the long hair, he's got the sandals, he's got the robe, he's got, you know, a sash on him, right? Like it, and, and they make him to be just like so much different than everybody else. Nobody else looks like him. Right. And like uh, he said, we, that, that's what we were talking about for a while. It was like, you know, he's a common man. Right. In his, in his appearance. Yeah. And, and so when we make when we have this, I, I feel like it, it leads to a violation of the second commandment to say, you know, we, we have this. We continue to do it. We put it in front of our children or we watch shows or we do whatever. And it's like, yeah, this is what Jesus looks like. You know, and well, we don't want to be guilty of the slippery slope fallacy, too. Right. It's just because. It can doesn't mean it does, right? Like, I remember, um, I'm probably older than most of you guys, except for Wu, but... So, so if I were to just maybe kind of, if we were to look and maybe jump to the text, right? So it sounds like, fundamentally, our question is really around Catechism Question 56, right? Right. It says, right, it was forbidden, the second commandment forbids the worshiping of God by, by images. And so, I'm not defending RC, but I'm not sure I actually find that prohibition in the text. Right. right. So, so in other words, you're not to make graven images and you aren't to bow down and worship them, right? Yeah. And so the connotation is that these are other gods. And so I think perhaps we're, it's, you know, because you, you can argue things about veggie tales and then even more broadly spe speaking, right? We can argue that anything that is a historical representation, right? For example, like the Last Supper, we know that that wasn't the case because everybody would have sat around probably in a circle and they would have all been reclining, right? So the fact that you're sitting around a, at a table, everybody bunched up on one side of the table, we know that's, a, that's an inaccurate, right? And so any historical uh, representation short of kind of like a video camera is going to be inaccurate in, in some respect, right? So, so well, I would, I would... Do, as the way I understand this, yeah. is right. for sure worshiping false gods is incorrect, but making like a storybook rendition or something representing God or the life of Christ or something like that, I don't think that that's, that's not idolatry. And I, and I agree. That's what I was I saying. Is that, that, too, saying that it, but it, it, it's about it's about the worship of this image, right? 
I agree, and I'm not saying so much that I disagree, but the Romans one part, though, that we can do that. And I'm not saying that it does prohibit us to, through our vain imagination, create an image that we have ascribed to God, right? But like John is saying, that's that's the position I take. I don't think that a narrative that's describing an event is us sitting down and worshiping it. Like, I don't... I don't know. I'll ask my kids, have you ever prayed and imagined Jesus to be the one storekeepers, right? And, you know, can it happen? Sure. I mean, but is that, there's a lot of things that can happen. That doesn't make them, make it necessarily prohibited, right? Yeah. I mean, and that was my conclusion as well, right? Like, it was a, it was a pastor that I know particularly who said he did, he stopped using the Jesus storybook Bible because of that, that reason, right? Those images. And I said, I wouldn't take that position, right? My, like, like, and I, and I, and I agree with what you said, and we worship. But I just said, I guess the the question that I had was, you know, it's very, like you say, it doesn't mean it can, but it's probably very easy to get, like, hey, this is what Jesus looked like when every picture looks like this, right? Yeah, you know, and I, I think it, too, it, it it's hard. We have to explain it. So, like, I don't think my daughter was making a race issue when she was talking about Jesus was white. It's just, but people do though. People they do. do. But my daughter, she's not. No, I know. Woke, no, know? I'm not saying. <laughs> she doesn't even know how to spell woke. Dude, she's got it. Hey, <laughs> she, she still get that long that that Her character, dude. <laughs> no, but people do, and I think we should prepare our kids, like because there's a reason why. All those paintings of Jesus are white, you know. Can I say all those reasons? No, I can't, but they shouldn't have painted him white, right? And so we do have some answers. Like, people are going to challenge us on that stuff. I get challenged on that stuff all the time. And it wears you down after a while. But I think we got to not be weary of that because, like John said, you know, the whole image part, it's not, you know, he answered your question the way, that I that was trying to be the route I was trying to go down. What were you going to say? I'm sorry. I was going to say it gives you nice guardrails to, to walk your kids through that because whether they see it in your home or not, those images are in the culture. Yeah. And you got to walk your kids and be like, this is an image that people have made. This isn't something that we're worshiping. This is a, this is d- describing a story. This is giving us something visual to kind of move around it. That's not the image that we're giving this thing worship. So right. you don't want to have this as your image of when I'm praying, I'm thinking of this thing. Yes. Of this exact image. With the right, the right. Back. You don't want to let them fall into that iconoclasm. For sure. Yeah. And I think what we really need to remember here, and there, there definitely, guys, is a sense of your conscience plays into how you interpret this. Mm-hmm. But the second commandment in many ways is like the forerunner of the eighth commandment, which is... You shall not steal what belongs to someone else. Mm-hmm. Glory belongs to the Lord, and we should not give that glory to anyone but the Lord. Mm, amen. And that includes images of the Lord. We should not worship a representation of the Lord in the same way that we worship the Lord himself. So there should be a reverence in our hearts and a holiness towards even you know just the, the idea of depicting God. We should be careful about those things. We should be very careful. The fear of God is lacking a lot in the yeah. culture that we live in today. When you got zigzag Jesus like everywhere and people don't really think much of it, it becomes cheap. It becomes like uh, there isn't that that sense of gravity and holiness yeah. that there needs to be towards any depiction of the Lord God. 
Brother, you, you you are nailing it. I had a guy come to my door on my Instacart a couple of weeks ago, and he had on a big cross. Started talking about his cross, and then he starts telling me, oh, we're all Jesus. Jesus is in every one of us. I said, no, that's not true. And then we went down that road. But I think that there's that aspect of it, and then there's the aspect of it from an apologetic standpoint. There are people who come to us, and like my cousin, well, Jesus is just a idol. So... He, does, he rejects the New Testament, so I'll turn right back around and say, well, who was this man that Joshua prostrated before in Joshua chapter 5? Say, oh, well, he was just admiring him. I said, so he was. You, you can fall down and worship before people you admire now? That's okay? That's, that was permitted in Israelite law? He's like, no. Well, who did Jacob wrestle with? <laughs> you know, that's when we start going into Christology, uh, you know, Christophanes and theophanies and the burning bush, you know, and I think we need to be able to give an answer, right? And so when it comes to these issues, they're, they're going to be okay. tough. And we talk also many times, right, the, the graven images, right, we have the, the cherubim that's going to be on the lid, right? Okay. Right. And so it's clearly, it's, I mean, you can't have this prohibition and then a couple of chapters later, you're actually, God's commanding idolatry, right? So... So again, you know, I yeah, think well, about kind of how you break down the, the, the laws, right? But if you yeah. take kind of a, uh, the, the RCC way of doing it, right? And kind of like if the if the main law versus two through six is just one law. So thou shalt not have other any other gods before me, of which all these things are flowing out, right? In terms of idolatry, worshiping other gods, making images, right? It all really falls under, you know, that, that you know, Yahweh alone is, is preeminent. And like Nick was saying, right, alone is worthy of worship that we shouldn't rob or steal from him. Absolutely. Yeah, slice it, right? Yes, Jesus is going to carry you or kind of lean you one way versus another. Right? Yeah, and I believe that's how Roman Catholicism even got its 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 wheels behind it. Because if you look at it, it's really a, a misunderstanding of of Judaism and bringing it into the new covenant. I mean, when you think about it, if you can do these things as long as it's the way God prescribed, well, why not put Mary up there, right? Why not still have a you know, a system where the priest, you know, approaches God for you, right? Well, because the New Testament tells us not to have that, you know? And so there's so many other reasons. I think, like Nick was saying, we do got to be very careful and have a reverence and a fear and an awe for God. Even that word, like, awesome. Like I was telling my wife, we shouldn't use that word when we do, oh, that's an awesome fighter. That word really only belongs to God, Right? He's really the one we should only be in awe and in wonder of, right? And so, you know, there's so much in our culture that is wicked that we don't even think twice of sometimes. And, you know, these are good discussions, and I think we need to have more and more of them. So. I had a question maybe around um, verses 5 and 6, right? You yeah. Touch upon covenant curses. So that would be an interesting thing if we kind of took it on modern days, kind of like maybe a question would be how would that manifest itself maybe in like passages. Yeah. Verse 6 is also interesting. If, if this Hesed, the, the covenant faithfulness is to a thousand generations, to those who love God and, and keep his commandments. Mm -hmm. So what would be kind of like the population of those people in the Old Testament? And, it's, and what if somebody were to argue that it seems like God's loving faithfulness though is as a response to, to the people's faithfulness, right? So it seems to indicate that God shows this generational blessing, if you will, mm -hmm. um, to those that love him and keep his commandments. Right. I would go back to 1 John. Grace in here. 
Yeah, I, w I would go back to, of course, it appears that way. That's what gives synergism so much teeth, right? Um, but yes, I do believe that, you know, we love him because he first loved us. I think that those who, the thousand is not literal, obviously, um, I believe. And I do not believe that. Um, Especially blessing upon blessings, right? <laughs> right. And there's not going to be. There's not going to be where, you know, God, I just had this discussion with my boy Victor, and he's a very passionate brother. He loves the Lord, but he goes to Calvary Chapel, and he's been there for years. And, man, me and this brother, my wife's like, all right, I'll see you all tomorrow when we get together because that brother wants to box from sundown to sunup nonstop about reform theology and about this stuff. But he would say that. Well, yeah, God blesses us, you know, and there is a, tr a, tr a truism in there about, yes, God rewards us when we're obedient, right? But God doesn't reward us with salvation. We don't add to the work of Christ. We don't add to anything God does, right? His sufficiency is found within himself. Or New Testament theology. I'm just saying if we look at verse 6 alone, right, how would you parse that? If I look at verse 6 alone, I don't think that we take that from our New Testament theology because if you look at we so were just talking. I'm not disagreeing with, with anything you're saying. I'm just saying thinking at, as the laws given out, right? It seems yeah. to kind of show covenant keepers and covenant breakers. Of course. If his hesed, right, his loving, faithful, loving kindness, it seems like I'm just saying straw manning, right? If somebody were to argue from verse six, of course. it seems like that's God's response though. I'd say there's a presence of Love me and keep yeah. my commandments is key there because you know yeah. this all begins with Abraham and regards who find that it, he faith in God he loved him and this is accounted to him as righteousness and so it's it's not just a matter of pragmatically are you going to do the right things and get a blessing out of it it's a matter of love which only the Lord does affect the hearts in those ways and we see even among these Israelites who are so quick to turn their backs on the true God and worship a false God. Which, in a sense, makes oh. you think, how many of these people were even really worshiping? Believers, this? exactly. This was just all pragmatic. We just need a new God. Let's move on. we got to get going. This is not practically beneficial to us anymore. So is there a love for the Lord there? There had to be somebody standing up and saying, this is wrong. It's shocking to me that Aaron isn't the one who steps up and says, no, this is wrong. We've got to stop doing this. And, I, and, and there's some caution as a pastor in my heart, too, because Moses, when he's called to represent the Lord, says, I can't do it. I don't speak well. And so mm. God makes a concession and puts a speaker in place to help him out. But the speaker is the one who's so quick to just be like, oh, that's what you want. Okay, we'll do that. And you just look at the pulpits in America. There's a lot of errands and there's not very many Moses mm -hmm. you know, who are willing to stand and break the tablets out of zeal for the Lord and say, we've got to repent, you know. So yeah. it's, it's, it's difficult. I think the love clause there is very critical. And you're right, though. It's not explicit right here, the grace of the Lord. But again, this is, you go back to the the, the, the parents of the two are together, right? If you love, you will keep yes. the commandments, right? For sure. And of course, I've heard that elsewhere. And there's also, I think, related to, to 32, there's interesting stuff in the literature where the golden calf is actually, you know, uh, it's actually perceived as, uh, in, in one view, right, that it's actually um, uh, their way of um, trying to worship Yahweh, right? Just yeah. Incorrect. Of course, and I would go to the Shema, which is a little later, but hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. When Jesus says, on, on these two hang all the law and prophets, I think where, where you know, our fellow human beings who are 
you know, unregenerate, wicked people. I think where they get it wrong at is it's not really love. It's 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 a it's a trade off. You know, it's like it's a bargaining tip. Like I will approach God on this grounds. I'll do this, God, and you'll do that. And God will have none of that. I mean, he tells when Israel was given that prayer. It just amazes me how many of my buddies that I grew up with in the city can recite the Shema, you know, word for word. But when I ask them, well, what does it mean? Then they, you know, that's why I struggle with the, the some of the books like about the MPP and that kind of stuff. Because when I hear these Jews today, I'm like, well, they certainly believe that works are meritorious, right? So it, it's it's a tough sell. I mean, you know, what the Meredith Klein book we were reading, not not Meredith Klein, but um, Robertson. Robertson, yeah. You know, like when people, uh, somebody had a comment about him saying, you know, when this covenant of works, covenant of grace thing, when people don't have that on the front end, then they find a way to get it on the back end. And I think it, it is tough. I know exactly what you're saying. But when you do biblical theology, um, I think there's enough in the Old Testament to show by itself that, God has to be the one to love you first before you'll, you know, have any love or any affection towards him. Um, Psalm 22 is what we were quoting in Sunday school. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted in you and you delivered them. Right. So we're talking about salvation and the aspect of it being it was a temporal deliverance. Right. But it was also a picture of pointing to the deliverance that they would have in Christ. That's how they would have understood Sozo. They would have understood salvation as, hey, wait a minute, you know, the son, therefore, if the son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. They would have understood that in the context of Egypt, right? So when salvation came, they would have been like, yes, like it's, it's, it's for us. God is doing this for us, right? And then they would have responded with love. So I think, uh, and the older I get, I just can't roll verses off the top of my head like I used to, but... I would have had an answer for that five years ago like that. Now I'm like, hmm, not enough coffee, not enough avocados, not enough fish today. So I'll get you, man. Just give me a minute. But I think it's 812. I would love to stay here all night. But uh, I appreciate the opportunity. Um, you want to close us in prayer, brother? Absolutely. Yeah. Lord God, I pray that you would uh, put in our hearts and our minds uh, an impression of your awesomeness, Lord, one that is accurate, one that is from the word. And I pray, Father, that we would trust in the things you revealed about yourself, that we would not feel a compulsion to try to reinvent you or to adapt you to our desires or our inclinations, Lord God. Mm. Help us to not uh, create golden calves of our own uh, that are cleverly hidden in our own personal interpretations or theologies, Lord. Help us instead to be a people of what you have revealed. I pray, God, that you would give us a great confidence in you Father, that what we need to worship you well has been given to us, that mm -hmm. we don't need to think beyond it. Uh, but Father, I pray also, Lord, that you would help us to not add law to your law. Help us to uh, to have consciences that are actively, actively trying to give you honor and glory and doing what we can to guard ourselves from this uh, worship of the wrong things. And so yes. may you be our preeminent one, our one and only. We thank you for being our all in all. We love you. And we glorify you and thank you for the preaching that you brought to us through John tonight and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.